morning. My name is Alex. I'll be reading today's scripture. It's from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the yeast, so that ye may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy, and swindlers, and idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now, I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral, or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Thanks, Alex. Here are defending champions of the uh, Defend the Burger golf tournament right here. This is Rob and John, and uh, we have a tournament coming up. There it is. This is what you win. So our tournament is next week. All the information is in your bulletin next Sunday, 3 o'clock at Haynes Point. For those of you who don't know anything about Haynes Point, it's one of the best-kept burger secrets in all of Washington, D.C., uh, these guys are very confident that they will never lose this trophy. Not only will you get the trophy in a burger, they said they'll pay anybody $1,000 if they can beat them in the golf tournament. So just an added, added incentive. Thank you. But read about it in the bulletin. Thank you guys for being here. Uh, congratulations on winning the trophy last time. Now you know why you didn't give us the mic. <laughs> there they go. There they go. Okay, uh, you saw the warning signs when you came in, uh, if this is your first time here. We're serious about those warning signs. Uh, the content that we're going to cover is mature content, and um, I just, we're, ser we're actually serious about that. So and we've been going through this a few weeks, and I'll say, I've, I've said this a, a couple times, we're kind of doing a new chapter in this whole series, and it seems like we'll get to a certain place in the service, and I'll see one person look to the other and say, did he just say, what's going, did he just say that? And um, sometimes people get up and leave, so we want you to know we're really serious. We have the warning signs there for a reason. And the next thing is, is this, none of these messages in these next five weeks that we're talking about messy relationships, absolutely none of them stand on their own. They don't stand, they're not, they're not alone messages, they're not isolated messages. They all need each other. We've set this up for the past three weeks where we've talked about the gospel so much 
And that helps us to have a platform in which we can have a discussion around what we're getting ready to go into. And so um, it's very important to know that. And don't take one message and say, ah, oh, okay, I've got it all. You don't. Uh, you have to hear all of this together. This is why Paul sets it up the way he does. So um, please be aware of that. Now, you might be wondering, Alex just read that text. You might be saying to yourself, how in the world did we go from talking about the gospel having nothing to do with moral reform or behavioral modification? How did we go from Paul being in Corinth, a city rampant with immorality, and Paul saying himself in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, saying... I was there with you for 18 months and I didn't talk about moral reformation or behavioral modification at all. How could we go from that to this, throwing this guy out of church? How did we get here and how did we get here so quickly? This is what we want to talk about today. I thought the gospel didn't have anything to do with behavioral modification. You notice in verse number two of this text, Paul says, and he says this four times, just in case we missed it the first or the second or the third time, he says in verse two, put the guy out. This guy is having sex with his stepmother. He says, put him out. In verse number five, I love the way he says it here. He says, hand him over to Satan. Could we just get more graphic? Hand him over to Satan that the sinful nature may be destroyed. Verse number seven, get rid of the yeast. He's calling the guy yeast. Take the yeast, get, it, get rid of him. In verse number 13, he says, expel the wicked man. Now, Paul has told us repeatedly that our righteousness, everyone, repeatedly throughout the scriptures, our righteousness has absolutely nothing to do with our obedience to the rules of the Bible. Nothing. You are righteous apart from the law. He says it over and over again. All of a sudden, this guy who's acting in a very sinful way, Paul's throwing him out of the church. What are we to do with those two things? How are we to make sense of that? Where are we to go? Well, Paul says, throw the guy out, let Satan destroy his flesh. This is what we're going to try to talk about today and talk about what in the world does the gospel have to do with sex? And so we probably should stop and pray because we're going to need God's help. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please be with us this morning as we look into some messy relationships. Help us to understand how the gospel um, makes sense of all of this. Help us to hear from you and, um, and grow and grow in your word. In Christ's name, amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, this is what it reads specifically about sex. It says, you say food for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God's with your bodies. There was two different polarizing groups. Listen, there's always been two different polarizing groups within humanity and definitely within the church. These two different groups, one group goes way far to one side. One group goes way far to the other side. And so on one side of the, one side of the fence, you had a group of people in Corinth who were saying, you know what? All sex is bad. Like, you don't even have sex with your spouse. Sex is dirty. God's against sex. And then you had this other group within the church that was way over here and says, have sex with anything that moves. If it moves, have sex with it. And this is what they're saying. 
They're saying, if you get hungry, what do you do? If you get hungry for something, what do you do? You eat. That's why Paul says this here. And if you are feeling sexual, you have sex. This is what you're doing. And Paul says, no, that's not the case. And what's interesting here, he says, sex is spiritual. Write that in. This is really important. He talks about the temple. Look, the temple was the height of spirituality in their day. The height of spirituality. And he's intermingling the talk about the temple, the height of spirituality, with sex, all on the same side. And he's saying that sex is something spiritual. He's saying it's not something that's physical. It's not something that's dirtier to be avoided. The Bible speaks about sex in wonderful terms. God, God is the one who created sex. The first commandment that we have in the Bible is to have sex. Go and be fruitful and multiply. It's the first command that we have. God is all for sex. But sex is something that's not just physical, it's spiritual. And this is why Paul talks about this. He intermingles the height of spirituality, the temple, with sex. The second thing he says about sex is that sex is serious. You see where he says this, his body is not meant for sexual immorality. And then he says, flee. There's a real sense of urgency there. Flee. Run. There's urgency. Be careful. What you're about to do is very serious. He's warning them. This is serious business. You're sinning against your own body. The image I get in my head when he says that is like somebody just beating up their own body, damaging their own body. He says, you're sinning against your own body. Be careful what you do. It's spiritual and it is serious. Now, what does the gospel have to do with all this? It says in John chapter 1, verse number 14, these words. It says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling, speak of, speaking of Jesus, among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. Jesus Christ is the gospel. The gospel is grace and truth. Jesus is full of grace and truth. Jesus is the gospel. The gospel is full of grace and truth. It's not grace or truth. The gospel, the power of the gospel, is both grace and truth simultaneously and the problem is is we tend to lean one way or the other and when we lean one way or the other grace or truth there's no power in that there's no glory in that all the power and all the glory is found in grace and truth together those things in our human mind seem to be a tremendous conflict with each other but god says he is both and he's both at the same time does the old testament god scare you does the old testament god confuse you when god says i'm going to pour out my wrath on wicked sinners okay what is your reaction to god being a consuming fire in deuteronomy god is a consuming fire and he's going to destroy the wicked if you're the kind of person that says okay I, what what's the problem with that if that's you you're probably a truth person if, if, if you're looking for a kinder, gentler God, if, if the God of the Old Testament is like, oh man, can we just move off the God of the Old Testament? Can we get to Jesus? He's just so sweet. And he's like, you're probably a grace person. These past few weeks when we've been really pushing the gospel, especially the grace portion of the gospel, if you've been 
a little bit uptight and anxious and your blood pressure has been rising, you're probably a truth person. If you've been like, oh man, just bring it on, John. This is awesome. This is wonderful. You're probably a grace person. We tend as human beings to slide one way or the other on this thing. We slide grace and truth. And the thing is, is the gospel is both and it's both at the exact same time. And those two seem to be in tremendous conflict with it. And here's the thing. I'm going to tell you something that's super important. Until we understand that the gospel is both grace and truth simultaneously, we will never understand the glory of God or the power of the gospel. It'll always escape our grasp. And that's what this message is all about. And it has something to do with sex. Deuteronomy 4.24, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire. Psalm 145, All the wicked he will destroy. Let me take a quick time out. When we started this three weeks ago, I know some people are like, you know, I, I maybe would like to invite a family or a friend or a coworker to, to come to Grace for this series, but I'm, I'm scared to death that maybe John's going to say something that's going to be really offensive, so let me just wait this thing out. And for three weeks, we've just been hammering away. We, 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 we've talked about the fact that, you know, the Christian church in America is known for one thing. What's it known for? What's the most famous thing, Christian church? It's not known for Jesus. What's it known for, everybody? You can say it louder than that. It's okay. 91% of people say, well, the Christian church is about anti-homosexuality. It's anti-gay. That's what the church is about. 91% of the people who are 16 to 29 in this country say, I know exactly what the church is about. It's nothing to do. And I've told you, I don't receive any phone calls about Jesus or the Bible. I receive one phone call, right? I want to come to your church. Tell me where you stand on gay issues. That's the whole thing. And so I've been hammering saying that we've messed the message. And so now you're, maybe your friend is here with you today. And all of a sudden, we're <laughs> here. We, oh, here he comes. So <clears throat> the fill in the blank, and the reason I just told you that now is the fill in the blank is this. God is an unrelenting punisher of sin. Unrelenting punisher of sin. And some of us are like, whoa, why did you bring me here today for this? You should really listen to the previous three messages. It'll make more sense. God is an unrelenting punisher of sin. And listen to this one. No sin is too small. No sin is too small to escape God's holy eye. He's going to punish every, he's going to pour out his wrath on every sin. Oh, but it's just a small sin. I don't care. I'm pouring out my wrath on it. That's who God is. We're going to see that clearly. Listen, Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28 is a phenomenal chapter in the Bible, and it starts this way. Listen, I'll just read you the first verse. If you fully obey, do you see those words? Fully. That means in perfection. In perfection, you do absolutely everything that God says in his word. Everything. Fully. 100%. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all of his commands, I give you today. And then he goes on to say, you're going to be blessed, you're going to be blessed, you're going to be blessed, you're going to be blessed. And then he says later on, Verse 15, however, here comes the however, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all of his, not some of his commands, not things that, oh, this is important to me, but it's not really important to others. Okay, whatever. All of his commands I'm giving you today, all these curses will come on you and they're going to overtake you. You'll be cursed in the city. You're going to be cursed in the country. Your basket, your kneading trough is going to be cursed. The fruit of your womb is going to be cursed. The crops of your land, the calves of your herds, the lambs of your flocks, you'll be cursed when you come in and cursed when you go out. The Lord will send you curses, confusion, and rebuke. Everything you put your hand to until you are destroyed and come to sudden ruin because of the evil you have done in forsaking him. The Lord will plague you with disease 
until he has destroyed you from the land you are entering to possess. The Lord will strike you with devastating, with wasting disease, with fever and inflammation, with scorching heat and drought, with blight and mildew, which will plague you until you perish. The sky over your head will be bronze, the ground beneath you iron. The Lord will turn the rain of your country into dust and powder. It will come down from the skies until you are destroyed. Woo! Who likes hellfire and brimstone preaching? My goodness, are you serious? You remember what we talked about for the last three weeks, and then here we go. What is this? If you're a truth person, you're like, oh, this feels so good. Bring it on, man. <laughs> Can you just turn it up a couple notches? The Bible says we are going to be cursed. Now, here's, here's, here's the other thing the Bible says, everybody. Every single one of us are caught in that net. I know it's nice to think, oh, yeah, tell them about the curses. No, no. 100% of the people in this room are all cursed because the Bible is really clear. Every single one of us are sinners. We're all caught in the curse net. That's kind of depressing, isn't it? That's slightly depressing. You know, when God gives the law in the, in the Old Testament, at the same time that he's saying, hey, you've got to do this and you've got to do this, you've got to obey me this, at the same time, he tells, he tells Moses about the sacrifices. You know what's up with that? God is saying, you've got to do all this or you're going to be cursed. But here's the sacrifices because I know you're not going to do it. I know you're going to mess up, so I've got to give you all the sacrifices. Simultaneously, God is giving commands, curses, and sacrifices all at one time. It's kind, of, it's kind of depressing. Now, aren't you glad that God has changed? Aren't you glad that the Old Testament God is no longer with us and we're on to a kinder and gentler God in the New Testament? And he's Jesus and he's sweet and he's loving and he's forgiving. Aren't you glad? That would be incredible news. But you know what? God hasn't changed. God has not changed. God is never going to change. God is not changing. God is an unrelenting punisher of sin to this very day, and he's not changing that. Every little infraction, God notices it, and he punishes it with wrath and fury and fire. How do you feel about that? I want to show you a clip about somebody who is a little bit put off with a God of justice and fury. Let's uh, watch the great Richard Dawkins. Hello, Professor Dawkins. How are you? I'm Ben Stein. I'm so sorry to keep you waiting. How are you? Fine, thank you. You have, uh, you have written that uh, God is a psychotic delinquent invented by mad, deluded people. No, I didn't say quite that. I said something rather better than that. Oh, well, please tell us what you said. Please tell us what you said. Um, I, well, I would have to read it from, from, from the book. No, please. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. So that's what you think of God? Yeah. Those are some pretty big words there. Uh, I wouldn't agree with all the labels that he put on God, but the general sentiment is that God is an unrelenting punisher of sins and he pours out his wrath on people and he will not overlook even the tiniest infraction. And that, my friends, is the exact picture that God gives us of himself and his word. He is going to pour out his wrath on all 
people, and every single one of us have been caught in his net. Now, where does the gospel come in with this? What are we to do with this? How do we make that? You know, the one, one of those popular questions I've received over the past three weeks is, wait a minute, wait a minute, can you, can you please explain the gospel to me? I'm trying to get my head wrapped around the gospel. And then how do I embrace it and live it out in my daily life? So this is what we're going to try to do. We're trying to make sense of this. Corinthians does it, but also Galatians does, which I've been talking about for a few weeks. So we're going to look at a little, little snippet of Galatians chapter 3 because it's going to really help us to put the two of things together. All right, Galatians chapter 3, uh, verses 18 and verse 21. This is what it says. It's talking about Abraham and the covenant, the agreement with Abraham. It says, for if the inheritance, right, the inherit, we're talking about righteousness, having, the word righteousness means to have a right relationship with God, okay? For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. The promise was given to Abraham. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. So what, what's being said there? What's being said is that if you and I could be obedient to what we find in, in this Bible, if you and I could be obedient and somehow we could be right with God, we could make ourselves right by being obedient to what we read, all the rules right here, then we didn't need the promise. And the promise is Jesus Christ. See, none of us, none of us are right with God because we do what's in this book. This is what's being said. We're only right with God because of a promise that was given. It's the only reason. So how does that make sense to what we just read, Deuteronomy 28, about all the curses that we have? Well, we need to talk about the difference between a promise agreement and a law agreement. Okay? So here we go. What is a law agreement? A law agreement is this. Um, I build you a building. You want a building built. I build you a building, and there it is, and you pay me $100 million. Okay? Just picking a figure out of the sky. You do something and I do something as a law agreement. It's reciprocal. There's two people involved here. I do something, you... That's a law agreement, okay? Here's a promise agreement. A law agreement is based on what two different sides do at the table. Here's a promise agreement. A promise agreement is all about the person who is making you the promise. Listen closely to help us to understand the gospel. It's all about the person making you the promise. In other words, 100% of the agreement is based on the person who makes the promise to the other person, and 0% is based on the person who receives the promise. So, in other words, if I said, in this envelope right here is $100 million, a check, and it has your name on it, for $100 million. And the only thing that you have to do to receive $100 million, which is very exciting, is to trust me. You have to trust me. Or do I have to do something else? No. You don't have to build me a building. I'm doing it. You have to trust me. That's a promise agreement. It's based on me. Am I a person worthy of your trust? Can you believe me? That's a promise agreement. Now, he talks a lot about Abraham in here, so I think it would be helpful if we bring Abraham out. I have Abraham. He's coming out. Here he comes. Uh, he's been out. Does, there he is. Can we have a round of applause for Abraham? <laughs> Wonderful. Good man. Come right on over here. Don't, no, nothing to be afraid of, Abraham. Come right over here. Now, since he's talking about, um, since, since 
we're talking about Abraham, I thought it'd be helpful just to have him show up today to help us understand what took place. Because Galatians 3 is talking about what took place in Genesis 15 and then 16 and 17. This is critical to understanding a promise agreement. So God says to Abraham, Abraham and God are having a conversation. And Abraham says this. Abraham says, uh, God, how is it that you're going to bless me when I don't have a kid? I don't have, I don't have a son. I don't have an heir. And God says, okay. All right, we're going to enter into an agreement with Joseph. He says, he says, Abraham, I want you to get a heifer, a goat, and a ram. Abraham immediately knows what to do with the heifer, the goat, and the ram. He takes his sword. Now, this is a, <clears throat> this is a serious sword. You know what I'm saying? This is like gladiator, braveheart, something. I mean, this thing must weigh like 15 pounds or something. So he takes the sword, and he gets those three animals, and you know what he does with them? He cuts them in two. Wham! I have to do this myself because I don't, he's not qualified to do this. So <clears throat> cuts them right into, take your sword back, Abraham, before we get carried away. It's a bloody mess. This is a contract signing, right? For you lawyers out here, you ought to be on the edge of your seat. We're signing a contract, okay? So it's a bloody mess. We have these three good-sized animals, their blood, their guts are all over the place. We're told in the scriptures the birds come and, and Abraham's shooing the birds away. And it's a bloody, brutal, disgusting mess up here. And then we're told this. Deep, dreadful darkness falls upon Abraham and upon the mountain that they're on. Notice that. Deep, dreadful darkness. So Abraham knows this. They enter the agreement with God. Let's just say I'm God for a second. Okay. I hate to do that, but I've got nobody else up here to deal with. All right? What we're saying here is if Abraham does not fulfill his end of the bargain on this, he becomes like those animals that are cut in two. That's God's, that's God's deal with Abraham. Okay? <clears throat> and we've got the deep, dreadful darkness. Abraham sees the bloody mess up here. He knows that if he doesn't fulfill his end of the bargain, he's going to get cut in two by the big sword. That's what the agreement is about. And Abraham's probably slightly nervous about this whole, whole thing, right? All right, now, here's where things get incredibly interesting. Right in the middle uh, of the whole thing, you keep your sword with you. Abraham, when it comes time to sign the contract, Abraham goes to sleep. There he goes. <laughs> Sound asleep. Now, can you imagine falling asleep? when you're getting ready to sign the biggest, most important contract of your entire life? And for most of us, maybe that's a house or something like that. Can you imagine, you know, like, wake up, asleep. He's totally asleep during the contracts. What does that mean, everybody? And then we're told this God comes down as a smoking fire pot. And God by himself walks in between the carcasses of the bloody, brutal, guts hanging out animals. And he walks all by himself and God fulfills both sides of the agreement. You know what that means? It's a promise agreement. It means it's totally based on God. It also means this. It doesn't matter what Abraham does. It doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is what God does because God's fulfilling both ends of the agreement. It's a promise agreement. Now watch this. Now, Abraham, it's over. We're going to wake up. Here he comes. And we're going to move to Genesis chapter 16. Very next chapter. 
So Abraham has got the fear of God just flowing through his veins. He saw the blood, animals sliced in two, very serious moment, right? And so he's, oh, I got to be perfect. I got to live up to my end of the bargain. That's Genesis 15. What happens in Genesis 16? Remember, Genesis 15 is the agreement about Abraham's going to have a kid, right? Right? He and Sarah are going to have his kid. Genesis 16, fear of God flowing through him. Abraham's wife, Sarah, comes to him and says, Abraham, I, we haven't had any kids together, and so I'd like you to take my young maid, Hagar, and use her as a birthing machine, have sex with her, and you know, we'll have a kid that way. Now, what would you think that Abraham would say with the fear of God just pumping through his veins? After the bloody, you know, you're going to be cut in two just like the animals. What would you think, right? Fear is so good in our relationship with God. It's the foundation of our relationship, right, truth people? Right? So it's so good. Well, so of course Abraham says, no way. No way, man. I'm not doing that. I trust God. Besides, you know, Sarah's like 70, 80 years old. I I would much rather have sex with your 70 or 80-year-old body than that 30-year-old girl over there. Hagar, I don't. Come on. Are you serious? I don't want to do that. No, no, no. Abraham says, well, okay. If I have to, you know, I guess I'll, you, you know. I guess I will, okay? And so they do. Now, that's Genesis 16. What happens in Genesis 17, everybody? Come on, this is amazing. This is amazing. God shows up. God shows up, and he's got his sword. He's like, okay, buddy, here I am. Remember the agreement? Remember the animals cut in two? We're going to cut you in two. Is that what God does? Does God cut Abraham in two? He doesn't cut Abraham in two. This is a problem. This is a problem. God cannot lie, everybody. Some people think, oh, yeah, God, he just, oh, forgive it. He makes, waves his magic wand and everything. There's no problem. God can't do that, everybody. God can't lie. Is God a person that God says, if you break this agreement, you are cut in two. And Abraham wasn't cut in two. We have a problem. God's become a liar. He's a liar. He is an unrelenting punisher of sin, and this guy has sinned grossly. He has broken his agreement with God, and he's mistreated this young woman, Hagar, by using her for sex to be a birthing machine. And either God is a God of honor and character and going to fulfill his end of the bargain, or God is a liar. You can't have it either way. God has to do something here. But God doesn't cut him in two. You know, it's frustrating sometimes we talk about God, we have this view about God that, oh, yeah, God just, oh, he just lets it go. Everything's just okay. It's cool. You know, if you think that way or you ever know somebody who says that way, oh, God just, he just forgives. Here's the question to ask. How much, if God just loves you like that, how much does it cost your God to love you like that? You know how we measure great love? You know why the reason I started this whole sermon off this way? We measure it by great pain. We say, oh, man, those people really loved each other. Remember the story about the dog crawling across the exam table? Great pain, great love, great pain, love hurts. For somebody who thinks that there's not a tremendous pain price to be paid in pain for love, that love is very, very cheap. That love has no power to it. So God says to Abraham, Abraham, look, I'm not going to cut you in two, okay? Because it's a promise agreement. That we've, it's all based on me and what I do, Abraham. Not going to cut you in two. However, 
what you did is completely unacceptable. And though I'm not going to cut you in two, you are going to bear a scar. And so God pulls out a much smaller sword, and he says, we are going to circumcise you, buddy. You, you misused a part of your body that is completely inappropriate, and you mistreated you mistreated my greatest creation. Do you think you're going to get away with that? Now lift up your robe. <laughs> and this is what happens. Now, from this point on, Abraham knows that that type of action is completely unacceptable, and all of his family knows from, from now forevermore. Unacceptable. So, um, I think we're done with Abraham. Could we have a round of applause? It'd be excellent. Yeah, excellent. Thank you. Just take care of the rest of the sheep out there, and uh, we'll call it a day. Thank you very much, Abraham. Um, all right. How do we help God out here that he's not going to be a liar? What does the scripture say? God is a God that does not lie. So here's what happens, everybody. Grace and truth. Both of them are needed. Isaiah 53. Speaking of Jesus Christ, watch this. He was despised and rejected by mankind. He was a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one with whom the people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? Now here we go. See this? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people, he was punished. So God did not lie. Somebody had to be cut in two. Who was cut in two? Who did God take out his wrath and his judgment on so that he would not be a liar? Jesus Christ. Abraham was not cut off. Abraham was not cut in two. Jesus Christ was cut in two. And what are we told? What are we told there when Jesus is hanging on the cross? Huh? We're told that deep, dreadful darkness falls upon the land, the same dreadful darkness that fell upon the land with Abraham. And yet in this case, Abraham was not cut in two. Jesus Christ was cut off and cut in two because he bore the brunt of all that pain. Fill this, uh, fill this in. This is very important to understanding grace and truth. And here is where all the power and all the glory lies. His truth demands punishment. Absolutely. Absolute punishment, but his grace demands replacement. His truth. Here's the reality of the gospel. God is an unrelenting punisher of sin. But we can't. All we could do is suffer the pain of that. There's nothing we can do to change it. We could never be good enough. We could never justify ourselves before God. It doesn't matter what we do. There's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can do. The only way out is for God himself to come and to take the wrath himself. The punishment to be cut off 
for us. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ, and those two seem to be in conflict. Moses in Exodus 33 and 34. Think about this. Think about this. He says to God, God, I want, to show your, I want you to show me your glory. Your glory. What is the glory of God? He says, God, I want you to show me your glory. Glory is something that is the best thing about somebody. What's the greatest thing about you, God? Moses says, I want to see that. I want to see your glory. Show me your glory. So in Exodus 34, 34, God says, okay, Moses, go up into the mountain, and I'm going to show you my glory. And he's up there, and God speaks to Moses. And ready for the message system? He says, God, he says, here's my glory, Moses. I am God. I am loving, and I am kind, and I am merciful, and I forgive. Yet... Yet, I punish sin to the third and the fourth generation. Nobody, nobody, nobody gets away with sin. How do you marry those two together? That's the glory of God. We can't understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. We cannot embrace or experience the glory of God until we understand that those two things are working simultaneously together. For the whole history of the church, we've had people on polarizing sides of this event. We got the conservative churches over here talking about sin and judgment and damnation, and they think that's where all the glory is. They think that's where all the glory is. Because, man, we're the true church. We're standing up for what's right, and they have no glory. And you have the liberal church over here who says, oh, man, God just forgives. He just forgives. It's great, and they have no glory. The only place the Bible says the glory is is when the two are married together, grace and truth. God is an unrelenting punisher of sin, and yet he takes our place. Have you experienced God's glory? Do you embrace, do you understand, do you grasp that? Has that filled your soul, the awesome glory of God? It's incredible. It's incredible. The glory of God. I have a last fill in the blank blank for you, and that's this. Be brave because love hurts. Be brave. You know, I've talked about this before. If you go on online, you go to dictionary.com, and you put in the word love. I don't want to know what the word love means. It says love is a warm feeling. It's a warm feeling. It's a problem with warm feelings. They come and go, right? When I have a good meal, I have a warm feeling. And then I eat too much and I'm sick, right? I listen to good music and I get a warm feeling and the music stops. When the Redskins win a game, I get a warm feeling, right? I'm feeling really cold, right? (laughs) Warm, it's a warm feeling. But the Bible says love is not a warm feeling at, at all. It's not a warm feeling. Love is a decision that brings hurt and pain. A lot of times, we'll walk away from love. We say, wait a minute, wait a minute, it's starting to hurt. That must mean I don't have any love for this person or whatever. I'm let, so I, I, I walk away. That's what dictionary.com would tell us to do. Love is over. But is, you know what's so interesting? Is at that same moment when it's starting to hurt, divinity.com, God's definition of love, knocks on that same door and says, it's just starting to get good. Love is just starting to heat up two polar opposites. Absolutely amazing. Now let's think about this in conclusion. How did Jesus Christ get into that relationship with us? How did that happen? It happened through great pain. It happened because he says, I can't just do anything I want to do. I can't, Philippians chapter 2, I can't just stay up here in heaven and enjoy the beauty of heaven. He had to give up his own independence. 
He had to hurt and die and sacrifice what he wanted to do. Remember his speech in the garden? God, if there's any way that this cup can pass from me, please let it pass from me. I don't want to do this. He had to give up his independence in order to get into this relationship, and he did it all for us, and he was cut in two for us. And that is the glory of the gospel. Now, I want to conclude by saying one final word to women and one final word to men. And, and this foundation of the gospel and what does it have to do with sex, okay? To the women. Do you know who you are? If you're a woman here today, do you have any idea who you are? Have you read the story of the Bible about your creation? Have you spent time pondering what it says? Do you realize who you are and your value? Do you realize that the first negative statement in all the Bible, God made that negative statement? He said, something's not good here. And the reason something was not good is because you had not been created yet. You hadn't been created yet. Do you realize that as you look at creation, that God keeps just making things better and better, refining, 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 until God gets to this glorious crescendo end. And he says, I will create a woman. And she is the crown of all creation. She is the best of the best of the best that I've ever created. She is more valuable than anything else I've created. She is, and when God creates you, when God creates you, God says, now we're done. Do you understand your value? Do you have any idea of your worth? What's so amazing is the devil shows up to the woman. God says, you, you are more than enough. There's nothing been created that's better than you. And what is the devil? What's his message when he shows up to the woman? He says, you're not enough. Do you know how valuable you are in the eyes of God? You're the top of the top. You are God's glorious creation. Now, if a man wants to have sex with you, and he is unwilling to sacrifice and to give up his independence and commit his life to you, he is unworthy for you. He is unworthy of you. You're far too valuable for that in God's eyes. This isn't a sex-sick thing. Oh, yeah, sex is dirty. No, 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 no. No, this is a value thing. Your value is through the roof. If that guy is unwilling to pay a price and to die to himself and to commit his life to you, he is not worthy in the eyes of God, period. Uh, okay. Just roll quickly to guys, all right? You see where we started. Paul says, this guy is having sex with his stepmom. Throw the bum out. I'm like, whoa, man. Give him to Satan that Satan may destroy him. Now, more than likely, his stepmom is probably younger than he is. So it's not like, you know, whatever. Uh... <laughs> But what's being said here is that what you're doing is completely unacceptable. You will not mistreat 
you will not mistreat my most valuable creation. How about this? Abraham. God says, I forgive you. I'm not going to cut you in two. But I am going to clip you. Because you need to know and your family needs to know for all, all of eternity, all of eternity, every single one of you needs to be circumcised. And it all started on that day after sex with Hagar. Using her, using her as like a birthing machine. Oh man, just have sex with the, with the maid girl over here. And God says, oh no, no. Oh no, we're not going for that. You think that she's, you think she's worthless? She value, I want you to know how valuable she is in my eyes. Now, pull up your robe and we are going to clip you and you're never going to forget this again. It's a serious moment. You're not going to do that. Peter, 1 Peter 3. You know what he talks about? You know what he says this? He says, look, husbands, you better treat your wives with respect and be considerate of them. Now, you've got to know this. That was not the culture back then. It was a culture where the husband was complete control and his wife was, a, it was an object to be ordered around and it was for him. And he says out of nowhere, he says, you treat them with respect and honor. Honor. Are you serious? Honor. And you respect and be considerate. Then, here's the parting shot, 1 Peter 3, 7. He says, if you don't, here's a divine threat from Almighty God. If you don't, don't bother praying. I like the way the Amplified Bible says it. It kind of gives a full, because the, the, the Greek is very harsh here. Notice the words it says, if you don't, I will cut you off. Where We got back to the cutoff again, didn't we? I will cut you off. It's a divine threat, and it's very serious. Let me end with this. There's this movie called The Lincoln Lawyer, and um, there's a scene. It came out a couple years ago. There's a scene in it where it's about a lawyer and his client. His client's a really bad guy, and his client thought he was you know, really tough and mean and brutal and all this, but he didn't know that the Lincoln Lawyer over here had tremendous power and connections himself, and so the client breaks in. The client breaks into his house late one night, and he's sitting at the lawyer's desk. And the lawyer walks in, and uh, the client begins to say, you know, I see this picture of your daughter here. She's very beautiful. She has soccer practice on Thursdays, right? And the lawyer, like, breaks in real quick. He says, duh, duh, duh. And he gets up in his face, and then it gets really dark. So, you know, it's getting really serious. And he says, you think you're the first client that has threatened my life? And then he like gets this close to him. And he says, Lewis, the guy's name was Lewis. He says, Lewis, are you scared? Because you're in a very dangerous place right now. Are you scared? You're in a very dangerous place. Men, listen to me. God loves you. Jesus sacrificed cut in half for you. You will not mistreat his greatest creation and get off Scott clean. You want to have sex with a woman? You want to watch pornography, which is more abuse to women? You want to do all these things that are great and exciting. They're great, exciting to a man because we're very visual and we love sex. God is going to make you pay. You will not get away with this. It is a very dangerous place to be. 
You do not mess with his greatest of all creation and walk away scot-free. Just a word of warning. I want to end with this. If you've never experienced the true glory of God, if you've never understood that it's not your obedience to the law that makes you righteous before God, if you're all just tied up about I got to do the, all these rules and stuff, if, that, if you've never experienced the glory of the gospel, which is grace and truth, I want to ask you in conclusion here this morning that you pray, God, please help me to experience the glory of your gospel. Our prayer team is right over here on this wall afterwards. They would love to pray with you about this. Don't live your life without ever experiencing the awesome glory of Almighty God. It is phenomenal. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, so much for your word. I thank you for your glory of grace and truth. I just want to pray for all those in this room right now who are just struggling, wrestling with it, trying to understand it. Help us, God, to comprehend it. Reveal it to us, Holy Spirit, what it means grace and truth at the same time together working for those of us right now who our hearts are bursting open because for the first time in our life we're starting to understand grace and truth we're starting to understand the gospel we feel your presence holy spirit filling our life help us to right now just pray to you and say lord i just embrace you completely it's not by my righteousness it's by the righteousness of jesus christ and jesus alone that I am made holy in the sight of God. Father, bless all of us as we're on this journey together. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for being here today. Uh, Grace in five, right over there. In three minutes, Grace in five, food trucks outside. God bless you. Thanks for listening to this week's message. Grace Community Church, a church for people who don't go to church, meets on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. in Arlington, Virginia. Connect with us anytime at trygrace.org.